Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Philippians, the book of Philippians. So it's in the New Testament. You're going to be further than three quarters turned in your Bible when you find it. So the book of Philippians, we're going to look at chapter 2 this morning. Uh, We began a study uh, in this book not long ago, a few months ago, so we are now into the second chapter. Last time we looked at verses 1 through 11, this time we're going to look at verses 12 through 18. So I've entitled the sermon, Doing What Has Been Done For Us. Doing What Has Been Done For Us. So first, let's begin by reading together Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 18. The, The words are up there for you as well. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's go to the Lord and ask for His help. Father, we come to You and and we acknowledge that it's You who have brought us together. It's because of Your initiative, of Your working, that we even can come together certainly come together as the people of God. It's because of the work of Your Son in taking on the punishment of our sin and living a perfect life that we can now have peace with You, go so far as to even be called the children of God because of what our older brother, our Lord, has done. And it's because of the mighty work of Your Spirit that brought us from death to life, that raised within us even the desire to know or be part of the things of God. And it is Your same Spirit that is given over to us through the ages, Your Word. And so now I pray, God, that You would find us as a people gathered around and under and submissive to Your Word. This ancient text written centuries ago. But I pray that we would believe by Your Spirit it is life to us this morning. It is, it is bread. It is water. It can, it can give us energy and help. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in a similar way I've been praying for myself. And that is, would You move us from grumbling disputing with you, with maybe with each other, maybe about the circumstances of life, 
that have moved us or can move us to complacency. And instead, by Your Word this morning, would we instead be a people with an attitude of awe and amazement, of fear and trembling that leads us to get to work on our salvation. I pray, Father, that You would do that. I pray that You would give help to the hearers of Your Word and help to me, the one who's leading us. In Your name we pray. Amen. Well, it's likely that none of you all, at least the ones that are old enough, uh, will forget where you were 15 years ago today on September the 11th, 2001. It's certainly true for Major Heather Penny. She found herself on the runway at Andrews Air Force Base with her hand on the throttle of an F-16 armed with mission orders, Go Bring Down United Airlines Flight 93. Penny was a rookie. She had just completed two weeks of air combat training in Nevada, and now she found herself racing at 400 miles per hour across civilian airspace on a mission, first ever, to bring down a passenger jet. The few hours that had passed from when the first tower fell to when the uh, orders were finally given to when she's now actually racing towards her target, those were muddled and confused and the orders went all over her place. The place. Now she and her superior, flying the other scrambled F-16, they finally had clear orders. They had a bead on their target. They lacked one thing. Armament. They had no missiles and they had no bullets. It's hard to imagine, but in that day and age, there were no armed fighter jets in D.C., Penny knew that when she took the orders. And so did her superior. When he told her, go scramble your jet. And he explained that he would aim his jet at the cockpit. And she would aim hers for the tail. She admits that while she considered the idea to eject prior to impact, she determined she could not do so because the thought of failure was worse than the thought of dying. We have Major Penny's testimony today not because she was unwilling to carry out her heroic mission, but because her heroic attitude and spirit was preceded by the heroic efforts of the passengers of United Airlines Flight 93 who took over the plane and forced it to crash, as we all know, in Pennsylvania prior to reaching D.C. Adding to her heroism, heroism, Penny acknowledged that As she headed towards the passenger plane, she did so all the while knowing there was a very good chance her father was piloting the other aircraft, Flight 93. Her dad was a United Airlines pilot who had been flying the same route for the last month. It ended up he was not on that, was not piloting that flight. This is just one of hundreds of stories that Thousands of stories that show us the the heroic efforts and attitudes of that day. But let me ask, why do we consider Major Penny a hero, even though she ended up not having to act? 
I'm going to assume that like me, you think she's a hero for what she did. It's because her attitude. Her attitude showed her allegiance. And it showed her trust in the one giving the orders. Today as we look at Philippians 2, we will see together attitude matters. Our attitude gives evidence of our faith and it informs our actions. So the Bible's made up of 66 separate books authored by at least three dozen authors. The Apostle Paul is credited with 12 of these books, all of his are letters. And so this morning we find ourselves looking at the letter to the Philippians, Paul writing from a Roman prison to Philippi, which is in modern day Greece. And Pastor Mark gave us a theme for the book, for the letter. I think the theme we have here, our life is fulfilling when we joyfully surrender to the will and the work of the Lord Jesus as He's ordered it for our good and for His glory. New Testament letters, they read a lot like sermons. That is, they're mixed with some commands and then some explanations. This is often referred to as the indicative and imperative distinction, whereby an, an, an imperative is a command. It is prescribing what we should do. And an indicative is a, an explanation. It is describing why we should do something. Philippians 2, 12-18 has two imperatives. One is found in verse 12. Work out your salvation. The other is found in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Get this fixed. The millions listening from the internet want good audio. Um, (laughs) Fix somebody else's mic. Alright, anyway. uh, Everything else... So you get these two imperatives, work out your salvation and do all things without grumbling uh, and disputing. Everything else is an explanation around these two commands. And so I think you can sum up the whole passage with just this one sentence. Work out your salvation without grumbling or disputing. Alright, so let's dive in. Verse 12. Therefore... My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So let's begin that by looking at the imperative and working out the command and working our way out. Paul commands them, work out your own salvation. He said again, he commands them, work out your own salvation. In case you think you heard it wrong. He's telling the Philippians, you go affect, you go produce, you go bring about your own salvation. Now if you're familiar with Christianity, you might think 
this does not seem like something the Bible is allowed to say. That is, how can the Bible tell us to go work out our own salvation? And yet, it does. And you're right, there seems to be, at least at first glance, explicit biblical evidence contrary to this. Let me give you some examples. And you can, there's, this is just some quick ones. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Huh? That sounds different than work out your own salvation, affect your own salvation. Second Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, uh, verse 1, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. Paul, also a pastoral epistle to Titus, says in the third chapter of Titus, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but in accordance to His own mercy. Paul again, notice everyone I've given you is from Paul, the same guy who wrote, work out your own salvation. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Romans 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So how can Paul be commanding that the Philippians work out their own salvation? Well, let's look at it in a fuller context. But let me just give you a, a warning if the Bible says something that you're uncomfortable with, don't quickly try to simplify it and run around it. Let it stand for what it says and you're going to find something much richer. The Bible is saying to us, go work out your own salvation. And so what we do is we don't run from that and go, well, maybe by work out it didn't mean work out, right? You know, it says work out. So let's take it and let's figure out what, what's going on. So that's what we're going to do together, hopefully. So by context, that's what's around it. Well, let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 comes immediately after verse 12. For it is God who works both in you, both to will and work for His good pleasure. <laughs> that's tremendous. The way this is actually penned in the Greek is, is really helpful. So the very last word of chapter 12, if you're reading across the Greek, the very last word you get is actually the command, work out. The way the sentence is structured, the very last word right before verse 13 is the command, work out, where we also add the salvation that is yours would come before it. So it's got work out is the, is the end of verse 12. The very first word... Uh, verse 13 is God. And then it goes on, God, the one who is acting in you, willing and working for His good pleasure. So if you put those together, you get your own salvation to be worked out. God, who wills and works in you for His good pleasure. 
So while we are commanded to work out our salvation, we are told the entire work is God's. I mean, from the inception all the way through the completion of it. It is God who wills it, and it is God who accomplishes it. All that we do is do it. That's all that we do is do it. So which is it? Are we working out our salvation, or is God willing and working? And the answer is yes. And this is the Christian life. And this is the Christian experience. Notice, and I know you already noticed this, and you're like, if he doesn't do something about it, I'm going to tackle him in the pulpit. Verse 12 starts with the word what? Therefore. And you, you're astute. You're all over this. You're like, we know we got to ask what this is there for, right? And he, he was just playing games with us by skipping it. I was. I was playing games with you. But you would tackle a preacher if he didn't deal with the therefore, right? You have every biblical right to do that. Um, somewhere that's in the Bible. Um, okay, that's not actually. Alright, anyway. So, therefore comes at the beginning of verse 12, and it's connecting us back to the previous section. And what do we learn about in the previous section? Well, verses 1 through 12 is Paul giving one single command, one imperative, and he tells them, You Philippians make my joy complete. How? By counting others as more significant as yourselves, or than yourselves. And he grounded the reason for why they should do this in the incredible love of the Father, the incredible grace, mercy, compassion of the Son, and the incredible fellowship of the Spirit all working together in what? The Gospel. So, they were to consider the humility of Christ Jesus who came in the human flesh, owned our sin, all in order to give glory to the God the Father. They were to consider the love of the Father who subjected His only perfect Son to horrific treatment in order that as a perfect judge He might forgive our sin that His Son owned as our punishment. They were to consider the work of the Spirit who raised Christ Jesus, the same Spirit that enables our mouths to call Him Lord. So friend, consider that good news. The Father sent His Son into this messed up world to own the penalty of your sin. And He sent His Spirit to awaken life in you so you would look at the Son and call Him Lord. What's that supposed to do for us? It's supposed to elicit awe and amazement. You might call it fear and trembling. Verse 12, Again, therefore, my beloved, so given all of that, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, whether I'm with you or not, he's saying, I want you to complete my joy by working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just be amazed. 
So the command, work out your salvation, is sandwiched right in between an amazing gospel account of what God has done for us in verses 1-11, through and then on the other side, an incredible summary of the gospel in verse 13, for it is God who acts to will and to work for, your, for His good pleasure. And here we find help for the Christian life. We find hope. We find energy. As Christ followers, we are called to this awkward, awesome, blessed journey of doing that which has already been done for us. Our task is to do that which has already been done for us. So I'm going to offer up an analogy. I'm going to admit up front that it's inadequate. Imagine a guy by the name of Elmer. I love Elmer's. Um, Elmer's company has suffered a major data problem. It's a huge, huge mess. It's scrambled. The data is scrambled way beyond repair. Nobody can make sense of it. And to be honest, Elmer really doesn't know the first thing about a computer. But someone from the outside comes in and he shows Elmer this complex computer program. And it can clean up this huge mess of data for them. Elmer looks at it and he's utterly convinced that it's going to work. Elmer's told that all he needs to do is walk over the keyboard and hit the enter key. That's his job. So Elmer walks over to the keyboard, hits the enter key, and all of a sudden, this program begins to run. And within seconds, this horrible mess of scrambled data is beautified in amazing ways, completely cleaned up. What would have taken lifetimes of human effort was fixed. After this thing runs and his colleagues actually figure out what has happened, they go crazy, offering accolades to Elmer for his amazing computer skills and how brilliant he is. Now I submit there are two ways Elmer could have messed this whole thing up. There are two ways that he could have messed it up. First, he could mess it up by doing nothing. That is, when asked to hit the enter key, Elmer could just not do it. Not going to hit. Now if Elmer did that, then you and, and I would think the only acceptable conclusion is Elmer doesn't really see there is a problem. <laughs> Nothing there needs to be fixed. Or he's just not convinced that this program can fix the problem. That's the only conclusion you could come to. That, why else would you not hit the enter key? You either don't see the problem or you don't think this thing can fix the problem. Another way that Elmer could mess it up. A second way. He could mess it up if he did something while acting all the while like he actually did something. I mean, would we all agree that it would be absurd, like really absurd, for Elmer to take credit for what happened? I mean, he has no idea about 
how to even begin writing this program. It wasn't his idea to come up with it. It sure wasn't his idea of how to write it. And it wasn't even his idea to do it. All he did is hit the inner key. So for Elmer to act as if, do it, while acting as if he did something, we would only conclude one of two things. Either he greatly overestimated his effort, right? Or he greatly underestimated the problem that had to be fixed. In <laughs> ah, ah, no, I mean, that's the only thing. Either he thought that what he did was a lot greater or the problem to be solved was a whole lot smaller. There's the only two options you have. Now, one of the ways my analogy is inadequate, there are actually quite a few ways, um, so much so that this almost didn't make the cup, but it did. So, um, But one of the most important way it's inadequate is that as Christ followers, we can't even take credit for hitting the inner key. Because it's the Spirit of God who says, go hit the inner key. And it's the Spirit of God who enables us to hit the inner key. That, not even that can we take credit for. But that's it, it's an analogy. So I think we can learn a couple of things. If we do nothing, if we do not make efforts in our salvation, then we give evidence that we either don't believe that we need saving or we don't believe that following Jesus can save us. So someone who walks an aisle at a young age makes no efforts to fight sin, no efforts to grow in his knowledge of God, no efforts to grow in his love of the things of God, no efforts to participate in the lives of believers, no efforts to bring about fruit for the kingdom. That says something about him in the same way that Elmer not hitting the enter key says about Elmer. On the other hand, consider someone who works to keep up her clean image. She makes sure that she doesn't drink or cuss or smoke or chew or hang out with those who do. She doesn't, she doesn't really see the need for that confession and pardon, that awkward thing in the middle of the service. I guess that's good for some baby Christians who still maybe sin, maybe. She can't imagine someone seeing a shortcoming in her, and if she, they do, she will fight them tooth and nail to show them they're wrong. She is proud of her accomplishments and quick to tell you about them. I submit that she's as abs- absurd as Elmer if he tries to take credit for hitting the inner key, she has greatly overestimated her involvement in God's complete work of saving her. Or, probably more likely, greatly underestimated the depths of sin from which she needs to be saved. As Christians, we do that which has been done for us. We both do it and we do it acting as if someone else has already done it. And that actually is where the power comes from. We can act because we know someone else has already acted. Now, if this seems paradoxical to you, don't worry, it is. <laughs> that said, it's thoroughly Christian. I say that because a guy by the name of Jesus Christ said it. He taught it all over the Gospels. Let me just give you John. Here's the Gospel of John. Here's just a couple. He says in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's the 
God is acting to will and work for his good pleasure. The draw. Yet, he also says, same Jesus, same book, chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the work out your salvation part. Alright? One verse. John 10, 27. Here you go. My sheep hear my voice. That's the God who's acting to will and work His good pleasure. My sheep hear my voice. Hold on. And I know them and they follow me. That's the work out your salvation part. So brothers and sisters, what do we do? What we do together, we work out our salvation together. We do what God has already done, but we've got to get to work. We've got to work at fighting sin. Work at growing in love. Work to promote the gospel. Work at being uncomfortable and inconvenienced. I recall I said you could sum up this whole passage with the commands in the single sentence, work out your salvation without grumbling or disputing. So the first command is the action. Go work it out. The second one is the attitude while you perform the action. That is, without grumbling or disputing. And parents use this sort of talk all the time. All the time. Clean up your room and do it without complaining. Or go help your sister and be nice to her. Get up for school. No whining. Just get up. Right? That's this action with this attitude. It's interesting. The first command kind of gets all the attention given the paradoxical nature of it. The work out part. And I get that. But the more I look at the passage, I think the second command is really the major thrust. Even though it actually got less pages than the first command, so I guess I'm a hypocrite. But anyway... Um, Given that Paul is writing to believers, he expects that they're working out their salvation because that's just what believers do. That's why you can call them the beloved. So the real point to make is the attitude that we demonstrate while we are doing that. Parents also get this well. This happens a lot. A typical thought as a parent is, you're going to do X. Maybe because I've told you to or the school has told you to or because you're a member of the human race, uh, you're going to do X. The question is, how are you going to do it? What is the attitude you're going to have while you're doing it? And one of the things you find is the attitude often means more to you than the action. Like, I really don't care that your bed looks like it was made by three blind mice. I appreciate the really good attitude you showed trying to make it. On the other hand, I don't care that your bed is made so perfectly that we could flip a coin on it. It wasn't worth dealing with Oscar the Grouch to get that done. I really think a lot, a similar way of thinking is how the God the Father sees us acting as His children. I can get the action done. It's the attitude that matters to me. And so what's that attitude? Well, what he does is he switches to the negative here and he tells us what it's not. It's not grumbling. 
And it's not disputing. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The do all things refers back to verse 12, the other imperative, that is working out your salvation. So he says, do this without grumbling. Grumbling is to express that you don't want to do something. It goes against your volition or your will. He says, do it without disputing. Disputing is expressing that you don't agree with what you're doing. You don't understand it. It goes against your reason or your intellect. Paul is, is telling these believers to act without grumbling, without disputing. And so which one is he referring to? Is Paul saying, don't do this with your fellow believers? Or is Paul saying, don't do this with God? Well, quiz any parent. Ask them, which grumbling and disputing do you like least? The grumbling or disputing with you? Or the grumbling or disputing with siblings? And the answer is yes. Yes. I hate them both, right? The same thing here. Paul is talking about both. He's talking about grumbling and disputing with God and grumbling and disputing with one another. Either one displays an attitude that does not accord to our calling. So the imperative, work out your salvation, but do it with no grumbling and no disputing. And then he grounds it. Oh, this is so helpful. He grounds it. He gives us reasons for it. He gives us three reasons. Verse 15. First reason. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So the first reason to work out your salvation without grumbling and disputing is that you are the children of God. We are God's children. And therefore, we have three characteristics. We are blameless. We are innocent. We are without blemish. We should be. But notice that grumbling and disputing is contrary to all of those. This is as helpful as it is convicting. We often think that our attitude is secondary to our actions. But Paul is saying our attitude determines our actions. We act in ways that leave us less than blameless, less than innocent, that leave us blemished because our attitude is spoiled. It's an attitude of grumbling. It's an attitude of disputing. Verse 15 intentionally borrows from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. If there is anybody in the Bible outside of God the Father who knows about the grumbling and disputing of the children of God, it's got to be Moses, right? Like, he's got to have a PhD in grumbling and disputing of the children of God. In Deuteronomy 32, we get the story, the horrible story in 34 of him walking up that mountain to die by himself but Deuteronomy 32 right before he's going to go he's given a farewell speech and this is where Paul is pulling from the spirit of God is pulling from let me read to you verse 5 of Deuteronomy 32 they have dealt corruptly with them they are no longer his children so this is Moses talking to the Israelites he's saying they have dealt corruptly with God they don't even look like his children anymore Why? 
Here you go. Because they are blemished. Sound familiar? They are a crooked and a twisted generation. Here Moses says the Israelites are blemished. They're acting like a twisted generation. And they really don't even deserve the right to be called the children of God. When we grumble, when we dispute against God, against the ways of God, it warps our hearts so that we act in ways that are not blameless, not innocent. And instead we look like the world around us. If there's any group of people that should be convinced that God is willing and working their salvation, you would think it would be the Israelites. God miraculously led them out of Egypt, right? I mean, their job from the moment they set foot on the other side of the Red Sea was what? Work out your salvation. Just He's already brought it. Now just go walk to the promised land, people. But they didn't. Why? Because they grumbled and they disputed. That was the chief sin of the people of God from the, for, for the time in the wilderness. Grumbling and disputing. And they lost sight of what God was doing. I don't know about you when I say the we here, but if there's any more of you, I can definitely say we, because this is certainly true of me. Are we not so quick, so prone to express to God that we just don't like the things He's given us? We don't understand what's going on. We grumble and we dispute. We. Paul says, you're the children of God. I have miraculously affected, willed, and worked, birthed and brought about your salvation. You're headed towards the promised land of eternal salvation. Stop grumbling and disputing. The second reason Paul gives is found at the end of verse 15. The second reason that we should work at our salvation without grumbling and disputing. Among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. So Paul says that by working out our salvation without grumbling and disputing, we shine as lights in the world, we hold fast to the word of life. Now this word of this language of holding fast, it's a language of defense, of, of putting forth, of holding forth. We shine as lights when we trust the Word of God, even in the midst of the wilderness. When things got rough in the wilderness, what did the people of God do? They turned on Moses just in a skinny second. The very one who led them out of Egypt. You say, we don't have a Moses. Well, your Moses is not me. It's not any one of your pastors. This is your Moses. The Bible is our Moses. The Bible is what the Spirit of God has given over to us as the Word of God. And so, when we grumble and dispute, We are grumbling and disputing against the very Word of God. But when we act with an attitude of reverence and submission, 
of gladness and rejoicing, then we honor the Word of God. Imagine the Israelites trying to convince some pagan tribe out there that they should really listen to Moses. Can you imagine how that would go? I don't think it would go very well. I'm pretty sure they would say, y'all don't listen to him. All you all do is grumble and dispute against the things he says. I want to go back to Egypt. I don't like the food here. There's too much food. There's not enough food. I don't like this water. No, it's not going to work. But had they shown submission to Moses, believed, trusted in God, they would have had the opportunity to present Moses in a meaningful way to the outside world as someone who could be trusted. So we should work out our salvation without grumbling, without disputing, so that we can stand as lights to a world and actually hold this forth as something that can be believed. The final reason that Paul gives us to work out our salvation without grumbling and disputing is given at the end of verse 16. So then in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I love this because this is right after the greatest statement on humility in the entire Bible, which is uh, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. Right after that, Paul says, one of the reasons I want you all to do that is I want to be proud. I want to be proud of what God is doing. I don't want this to be of waste. So, Paul has anchored, started this whole section back in 127, which uh, Richard covered for us a couple of weeks ago. And we said, this is how you act as kingdom citizens. Remember that? Told us, Paul's saying, here's how you act. Even if I'm not there, Paul says, act like this. Here's how you act. And then he turns and says, you all make my joy complete in 2, 1 through 11 by doing this. And now he turns back again and says, look, even if I'm not there, I want you to act like this. I want you to work out your salvation. He says, I want you to do it because I don't want this to be a waste. When you grumble, when you dispute, it discourages me. I promise you, I promise you, every pastor in America would be happy to just do away with Pastor Appreciation Day altogether if congregations instead made a pact that they will work to stop grumbling and disputing. (laughs) Instead, there are congregations that grumble and dispute about what they should do for Pastor Appreciation Day. How do we honor the leaders among us? With gladness and with rejoicing. Without grumbling and without disputing, we work out our salvation. Verse 17 and 18, he concludes with personal example. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. So oftentimes, sacrifices upon the animal sacrifice, you would take wine. As Baptists, 
We like to call that grape juice. You would take wine uh, or very, very fermented wine, uh, uh, grape juice that you could get drunk off of. Anyway, um, you would take wine and pour it over the animal uh, sacrifice. Why? So that when the animal sa- when the sacrifice went up, it had a pleasing smell to it. What a beautiful picture Paul's saying. He's saying, you all working out your salvation, your faith, man, that's the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice. That's what I want to offer to God. I just want to be the wine on top of it. I just want to be the smell in it. That's all I want. And when you all work out your salvation without grumbling and disputing, then I am glad and I rejoice. And if this happens to me as well, I want you all to be glad and rejoice. Paul is writing from prison and he invites the Philippians to be glad and rejoice with him. Brothers and sisters, God invites each of us today to be glad and rejoice. Please, don't confuse this with fake, trite, let it go and let God utterances. This is a confident resting in God. It's a resting and abiding that leads us, that tells us to get to work. It enables us to get to work. It moves us from complacency to work. Work fighting sins. Work growing disciples. Work learning about our God. Work praying and hoping. It's the type of work that comes from working all the while knowing that He has already willed and worked in us for His good pleasure. Let's close in prayer. Um, If we can, could we end with uh, He will hold me fast if that's an option. That would be great. Please don't grumble or dispute about that. It's it's be a bad time. All right, let me pray for us and, and we'll close singing together.